everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. And today, we're going to continue taking you on a tour of the Outer Plains, as presented in the first edition Dungeons and Dragons Manual of the Plains. Now, so far, we've talked about the Nine Hells, the Lawful Evil Plane, and the Seven Heavens, the Lawful Good Plane. So it makes sense that our next stop should be that mid-ground, and that would be Nirvana. This is the plane of law and neutrality. So as defined in Dungeons & Dragons, lawful neutral is best thought of as a belief that law is all-important, and it doesn't necessarily matter if that law is fair or just or if it's fair to everyone. The most important thing in a lawful neutral character's mind is to preserve the status quo, to to keep government in power, because well-organized systems of government are the best way to bring about a lawful, orderly society. But again, unlike a lawful good character, someone who's lawful neutral isn't necessarily concerned as to whether the laws are are fair or whether they're harsh. So as the, I believe it was the second edition player's handbook described it, if bringing about law and order can be done with a benevolent democracy, well, that's good. If it has to be done through harsher laws and strict punishment, so be it, as long as you're maintaining social order. So how does this fit in with Nirvana? Now, before we talk about Nirvana as pictured in the Manual of the Plains, first we need to understand the historical background behind Nirvana. So we need to talk about the religion of Buddhism. Now, when I was working on my religious studies degree, I didn't take any classes that were strictly devoted to Buddhism. I did learn about it in my world religions class, as well as some of the other classes I took, uh, like religions in America, another class I took, religion and ethics, and also there were a couple of other uh, classes I took where we did touch on, on Buddhism. So, while I'm familiar with some of the basic beliefs of that religion, I'm not a practicing Buddhist, and also I never, since I never took any specific classes on that religion, I don't consider myself an expert on it. And of course, there, like many large religions, there are several branches of Buddhism, so we're not really going to get into the difference between the various sects of Buddhism. The main ones that I remember, and I apologize, I forgot the, uh, the the terms for them, but it translated something to the effect of little boat and big boat. And these were different practices in Buddhism where the big boat, or I think it's also called the great vehicle, that is Buddhism as usually practiced by the masses, whereas the little boat is that is the form of Buddhism that is practiced by monks. 
Also, I would like to give the mispronunciation disclaimer. I will probably be mispronouncing some of the words in here, but here we go. So first, we need to take a look at the historical Buddha. And the term Buddha means something to the effect of awakened one. And the Buddha was born as a prince named Siddhartha Gautama. And when he was born, his father was told by a prophet that his son would either grow up to be a great king or a great holy man and redeemer. Now, naturally, his father wanted to make sure that he would become a great king and carry on the family line. So when he was young, his father attempted to prevent Siddhartha from seeing death and unpleasant things. As I would recall, like if he was going to be going out into the countryside, he would send servants ahead to make sure there weren't any beggars or sick people or dying people that uh, the young Siddhartha might see. Well, one night he did sneak away, though, and he saw an old person, a sick person, and a corpse. So this brought him face to face with three realities that his father tried to shelter him from, old age, sickness, and death. Now, it was said that he also noticed a hermit who had nothing, but seemed content anyway. So this inspired him to become an aesthetic. He lived a life of poverty and denial for some time, but that wasn't really doing it for him. He wasn't finding the enlightenment that he sought in that particular lifestyle. Well, one day he set out to go meditate under a Bodhi tree, and he meditated for 49 days. However, he was then taunted by a demon named Mara, who told him that he wouldn't achieve enlightenment, and also uh, this demon tried to tempt Siddhartha, but he managed to resist those taunts and temptation, and on the 50th day, he achieved enlightenment. And he came to embrace what he called the middle path. He failed to find meaning while living a life of luxury, but he also didn't find enlightenment through total self-denial. So moderation is a significant virtue for Buddhists. So you, you don't want to become attached to material goods and to things, but on the other hand, giving up everything and going to uh, live out in the wilderness isn't necessarily going to get you where you need to go either. So the Buddha described something called nirvana, and this means snuffing out, like like you would put out a fire or a lamp. And this seems like kind of an odd way to define paradise, at least by Western standards, but the way that Buddhists see it is the reason that this state of nirvana is desirable is because it represents the extinguishing of the fires 
of desire and attachment that keep one bound to samsara. And we talked a little bit about this in our uh, when I did the episode on the seven heavens. You see, uh, Buddhism does share some beliefs with Hinduism. And he did recognize samsara, this never-ending cycle of birth, life, death, and rebirth. And like Hindus, Buddhists do believe in this, this idea of karma, where your actions are going to have consequences in the next life. The whole goal of both Buddhism and Hinduism is to break free of this cycle of life, death, and rebirth. It is said that once you've broken free, you've been liberated of that cycle, you can enter nirvana, which is a state where all negative feelings like hate, greed, desire, jealousy, and ignorance are blown out like the flame of a candle. So someone who obtains nirvana is said to awaken, truly awaken, and realize the true nature of reality. And of course it is going to differ depending on the branch of Buddhism, but there are some possible interpretations of what uh, nirvana is, such as total liberation from the cycle of life and death, extinguishing of the soul, or the extinguishing of the body and soul. Now, it's said that nirvana is hard to describe unless you have experienced it. So, to understand nirvana, we learn about individuals called bodhisattvas. Now, this is someone who could have entered nirvana, but they chose to go back and help others find nirvana. And I remember one uh, story from one of my religious studies classes. The story goes that there were three travelers traveling in the desert, and they were out of food and water, and they were close to death. Well, they came across a mysterious wall. And the first traveler climbed the wall, looked on the other side, and jumped down. The second traveler also does the same. He climbs up the wall, looks to see what's inside this uh, circular wall, and then he jumps down as well. Well, this leaves the third traveler. He climbs up the wall, he looks in there, and he sees a beautiful garden oasis. And he makes a different decision, though. Rather than go into this walled garden, this paradise, he chooses to go back into the desert so he can find other people and bring them to this oasis. So you could see that the this desert that these individuals are traveling through, that can be represented as the suffering that we endure in life. Once you find that oasis, that paradise, you certainly deserve to go in there because of all the suffering you've been through. But again, some people decide that instead of going in there for themselves, they're going to go and they're going to try to find others so they can also 
achieve this paradise. Well, how exactly does one go about obtaining nirvana? Well, Buddhists recognize the four noble truths. First is that suffering exists. Second, the cause of suffering is desire or attachment. Third, suffering can be ended. And fourth, the way to end suffering is to follow the Eightfold Path. Now, the Eightfold Path is divided into three sections. Wisdom, Moral Virtue, and Meditation. Wisdom consists of, first, the right view, which is the realization that life does not end with death. Second, is right intention. This is moving away from ill will to compassion. Moral virtue consists of right speech, which is telling the truth. Don't be rude. Avoid gossip and preaching the path to salvation. Next is right action. So this is no killing or injuring others and no sexual misconduct. Next, right livelihood. This is avoiding any sort of occupation that causes suffering in others, like running a slave trade or a gambling house or making poison or other dangerous substances. The final part, meditation, consists of right effort, which is avoid thoughts that disrupt your meditation, right mindfulness, which is be conscious of what you are doing, and finally, right concentration, which is the correct meditation. Buddhists also believe in avoiding the three poisons, ignorance, attachment, and ill will. Now, in some Buddhist artwork, when they're trying to picture samsara, uh, again, the cycle of life and death and rebirth, the three poisons are often represented by three animals. First, the pig. The pig symbolizes ignorance because in India, the pig is perceived as being a, a stupid or foolish animal because it sleeps in the mud and will eat just about anything you, you offer to it. The bird represents attachment, and that's because it tends to become attached to things, like attached to its mate. And finally, the snake, which represents ill will because it is prone to striking out at others, even with the slightest of uh, provocation. Now, these three animals are often shown as interacting in something called the bhavakakra. And I probably totally killed that pronunciation, so I do apologize. But this bhavakakra is a diagram used to describe samsara. The center of the diagram is where they'll usually put the three animals. And this is to stress that the three poisons, these three emotions, are what keep a person bound to the endless cycle of rebirths. Now, depending on the artist, there's a couple ways they might be pictured there. Some artists will picture the bird coming out of the pig's mouth and in turn to bite the tail of the snake, 
who in turn, the snake bites the tail of the pig. Or, the snake comes out of the pig's mouth and is seen biting the tail of the bird, who in turn bites the tail of the pig. So what type of message are we seeing here? The message, I guess, there's a couple ways at least I would interpret it. If you choose the first model where it goes bird, I'm sorry, where it goes uh, pig to bird to snake, I would see that as representing that ignorance gives birth to attachment. Attachment can lead one to have feelings of ill will towards others due to the desire to obtain more material goods, even if it means being hostile towards others. Hostility, in turn, keeps you in delusion. Or, if you prefer to represent the snake coming out of the pig's mouth, you could see this as ignorance causes you to be hostile towards others. And through your hostility, you develop attachment to material goods, and perhaps that's out of a fear that others will take your things from you. And again, this attachment is what keeps you rooted in ignorance and bound to samsara. And some of these uh, depictions of the bhavakra are quite intricate, and they'll again they're designed to as a way to illustrate the uh, concepts of Buddhism to the masses. The takeaway is that the key to obtaining nirvana is to learn to let it go. And if you start to have a Disney song in your head right now, I apologize. But anyways, let's go now to how Nirvana is pictured in Dungeons & Dragons. Now, going by the Manual of the Plains, it's not quite accurate. The Manual of the Plains does describe Nirvana as containing no passion, no illusion, and no pain. So in that regard, it's not far off from the Buddhist view of Nirvana. Because again, Nirvana is said to be the ending of pain and passion, and you've finally seen past the illusion that is the world we live in. But that's about where the similarities end. Now, unlike a lot of the outer planes, Nirvana is pictured as being just one plane. And it's a plane pictured as having a series of interlocking disks that move in perfect unison. This actually is uh, explained as that even though these disks are moving at in perfect unison, they move at different speeds, which helps keep everything moving at the same time. So, you know, even the, you know, smaller disks aren't going to disrupt the movement of the larger disks. Gravity on these disks is always directed towards the center of the disk. So you could walk freely from the top of one disc over to the edge and then go to the bottom. Or if you've got two discs that meet at a 90 degree angle, you could easily walk up to the one and then start walking up the other way, like kind of like you are walking up a wall. So Nirvana is inhabited by a species of strange beings called Modrons, where the lower ranking Modrons have geometric shapes until eventually it starts getting to a more humanoid form 
and the person who uh, run well, not the person, but the god who is in control of Nirvana is called Primus. Now, later editions of Dungeons and Dragons would change the name from Nirvana to Mechanus, and I'm sure one of the reasons that they made this change is because since Nirvana does have its roots in religion, they probably were doing this as a, well, I guess you could say this is the aftermath of the Satanic Panic, where TSR at this time was trying to, you know, remove as much of the religious uh, imagery and terminology from the game that they could. Now, the Modrons are not the only ones who inhabit Nirvana. There are several deities that are said to inhabit this plane. And you'll probably not be surprised to learn that uh, many of the gods said to inhabit this plane are associated with law and order. First, we have Anu, a Sumerian sky father god, and he was also judge of the dead. And we're going to see this as a reoccurring theme. And I can understand how they would put death gods as lawful neutral because it comes to the philosophy that, well, death is a natural part of life and it's a part of the natural order of things. So just in my opinion, I just think that fits well with the lawful neutral alignment. Well, moving on, we've got Shang-Ti. And this is the supreme deity of the Chinese gods, often worshipped by the emperor. He may have had a storm god aspect as well, and there are Chinese bone carvings that do petition Shang-Ti for rain. It's said that he lives in a palace surrounded by peach trees, whose fruit has the same effect as a potion of longevity. It's also said he has a great library containing the lost works of various prime material planes. This library is attended to by faceless giants in gray cloaks. They are said to visit prime material planes in locations where disaster is about to hit so they can preserve any knowledge that would have otherwise been lost. So, oh, you could kind of see these guys appearing at like uh, one of the ancient uh, libraries of Alexandria in Egypt. Honestly, I can also see this as a pretty cool plot hook, where maybe if there's some lost bit of information that's uh, needed to defeat some sort of evil uh, entity, maybe you might have to travel to Nirvana so you can petition Shang-Ti to get that information. Now, there are a couple of Hindu gods pictured here as well. Uh, first, Varuna, and this is the Hindu god of water and law, though earlier stories place him more along the lines of a sky god, and it's said he could also protect against storms. We also have Rudra, a Hindu storm god, and also a god of the hunt, and another Hindu deity, Yama. This is the Hindu god of death. It's said that he was the first mortal to die. And, well, as a, as a prize, I guess you could say, he was given the place to judge the dead. Now, there's also a, an Egyptian deity in here, Horus. Horus the Avenger, 
who often appeared as a man with a falcon's head. Now, he was a very important god in the Egyptian mythology. He plays a prominent role in the Osiris myth. Now, it was said that Os- Osiris, Horus's father, was murdered by his brother Seth before Horus was born. And Osiris's wife, Isis, uh, managed to put his body back together so that way she could conceive Horus. And after he was born, he was raised to be a god of war and also a god of hunting. This eventually brought him into conflict with uh, his uncle Seth and there's various uh, stories detailing their conflict. But eventually, Horus was able to defeat Seth. And this is important because it represents the triumph of law over chaos. So in that regard, he actually fits rather well here. Then there's Utu. This is a Sumerian god of the sun, law, and justice. It's said that every morning he rides his boat or his chariot across the sky. And at night, he goes to the underworld where he judges the dead. So again, we see that aspect of a sun god or a law god also presiding over the the dead as well. And finally, we have Enki. He is the Sumerian god of water, civilization, crafts, and creation. He was quite an important deity in the uh, ancient world back then, and one of the most noteworthy myths that we have about Enki is the story of Atrahasis. And this is a Middle Eastern flood myth that uh, actually is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, written flood myth that we know of. Now, it was said that the god Enlil wanted to destroy humanity because he felt that their their noise that humans were making, well, that was disturbing him and he kept him awake all the time. So he planned to destroy humanity with floods, famine, and disease. Well, Enki, he came to aid mankind by teaching a wise man named Atrahasis ways to counter the famine and the disease and the drought that Enlil was inflicting upon them. Well, needless to say, this did not sit very well with Enlil. So Enlil decided that he was going to unleash his master plan. He was going to destroy humanity with a great flood. Now Enki was forbidden to speak to Atrahasis directly at this point, So what the god did is he appeared in a dream. And in this dream, Atrahasis saw Enki talking to a house. And Enki told that house to turn itself into a boat and save lives. So Atrahasis then set about building a boat and he loaded it up with his family as well as animals. And then the floods came. Well, as the floods were ending, he sent out uh, some birds to go look for land. And once he got back onto land, he made a sacrifice to the gods. And this is when uh, Enlil 
decided that, yeah, he can't destroy humanity, but he still put some laws in place to prevent humanity from becoming too numerous. So, how does Nirvana, as pictured in 2nd edition, compare to the Buddhist Nirvana? As I was saying before, not very accurately. While it makes sense that there's this connection of a place where there's no illusion, no pain, and no passion, I wouldn't exactly call it the freedom that Buddhists envision. Because while Nirvana is the realm of perfect order, in some regards I think that makes it more akin to Hinduism, because, well, the Modrons fall into different castes. You know your place. And when you're in that particular caste, you do what is required of that caste. You don't aspire to be anything greater. But eventually you can work your way up to become a, a more advanced type of Modron. In that case, I think that the D&D's Nirvana falls a little closer in line to Hindu beliefs as opposed to Buddhist beliefs. And just from my personal experiences gaming, whenever I've done gaming, we never really worked Nirvana into our campaigns, probably because we it just didn't really seem as exciting to us. I mean, I now looking at it as an adult, I can see that some of the stuff I talked about would be good fodder for campaigns, especially if you consider that, you know, if you want to have it that Shang-Ti has this great library with lost works that could have uh, information your your party or player characters need to resolve a situation at hand. Well, I'd like to thank you for joining me in this episode and uh, hope you found the material entertaining and informative and who knows, maybe I gave you some good ideas for your own campaign. So with that said, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. Have a good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.